Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In cities across the country, as we see nightly video of fires and looting overshadowing peaceful protests. Protesters are demanding justice for George Floyd, who died last week after a Minneapolis police officer knelt on his neck for more than eight minutes during an arrest for an alleged counterfeit $20 bill. Joining me is Kimberly Crenshaw, a professor at Columbia Law School and a leading scholar of critical race theory who developed the theory of intersectionality. Is this unrest a reaction to George Floyd's death, or was it a combination of things coming together? Well, I think it's clear that it was a combination of many things coming together. There, of course, have been many deaths since the last moment of civil unrest over police killing of black people. Um, And that's just been, again, a steady beat. It hasn't been at all arrested since the last major uprising. And then one has to also take into account that the killing that, that prompted all of this caught on video, particularly egregious, particularly sadistic, comes on the heels of a vigilante-style slaying that happened in Georgia and the killing also of a black woman, Breonna Taylor, in her bed, uh, in her own home. So I think it was a, a sort of the constant reminder of the precarity of black life. And that uh, is simply amplifying the fact that black lives were being lost by COVID, um, thousands upon thousands of black lives being lost to COVID. And the overall impression, uh, at least coming from the White House, if not more broadly, uh, from many um, governors, and it seems more broadly from the community at large, is that this loss of life is not particularly significant. So I think the frustration uh, building up around the constant messaging that your lives really don't matter um, was a tinderbox uh, waiting to happen. Are you surprised at the extent of the reaction, not only in this country, but worldwide? Not having lived through now two other moments in history where there's been a broad uh, reaction. I think that some part of the strength of this one and the depth of it is because there's sort of a recognition that there's the moment of outrage, there's protest, there's promises that something's going to happen, and then nothing happens. I mean, literally very little happens. And then other avenues are, are shut off. Um, I think at least in in the minds of many people here in the United States, uh, peaceful protests uh, taken up by uh, Kaepernick, for example, um, the the football player, uh, resulted in him being um, 
actually unable to do his job, uh, being uh, verbally assaulted by the President of the United States. So the, the message seems to be not that there's a proper way and an improper way. There is no way to actually protest and create the, the meaningful avenue towards change. And I, I think that messaging is, is the one that is so completely um, uh, debilitating, so frustrating that it, it generates um, sort of mass outrage and the desire to demand a different outcome this time. We saw some police kneeling in solidarity with the protesters, and we saw violent confrontations in other places. How should police and government leaders be handling this? Is there any right way to handle this? Well, I was very impressed by some of uh, the performances that I saw by uh, police officials and, in fact, some police I, I I saw a, a, a clip from Houston where the chief of police there has offered to escort um, George Floyd's body uh, back to Houston. I think that is utterly unprecedented. Um, the police chief uh, in uh, uh, Minneapolis taking off his hat in speaking uh, to the family. Now, many people will say that these are symbolic, and they are indeed uh, symbolic. They'll point out that there are ways that uh, even these police chiefs um, uh, could do more and may be constrained from doing more, uh, given the structural realities that we have a highly militarized uh, police uh, force uh, across the country, and many uh, constraints that might otherwise be placed on them have been removed uh, or not uh, are not actually actionable because of law, Supreme Court doctrine, and politics. So the structural dimensions of uh, racialized policing are still a problem. But these symbolic gestures, I think, are cracks in the blue wall. They are acknowledgement that what we saw there was utterly inhumane, completely and totally inexcusable, and a reflection of what police officers are able to do or feel empowered to do when 99% of the deaths of black people in the last five years um, have resulted in no charges against the police officers. So a symbolic crack uh, is an important moment, an important recognition that there is something that's too much. Now, the fact that that something is something like this caught on tape um, and it's so vicious doesn't say a lot, but the fact that it's meaningful that they did it says a lot. So I think that's good. My worry at this moment, frankly, is that the uh, media uh, engagement with the protests of focusing exclusively pretty much um, at this point, it seems, on the violence uh, undermines these symbolic moments, and it undermines the, the the fact that the vast majority of people protesting are protesters. To, to say the protesters and looters are one and the same uh, is the same kind of group logic and group punishment that contributes to precisely the kinds of things that the protesters are protesting against.
So now the question is whether the media can break out of the cycle of, of, of focusing on the fires and the sirens and not at least trying to balance that with uh, attention given to the demands of the protesters and the possibilities of resolving this through de-escalation as opposed to um, the, the siren, uh, the literal siren and the metaphoric siren that we're seeing in the coverage right now. I, I want to turn to the charges for a moment. So we see now this video, and most people look at this and say this is an open and shut case for the police officer to be convicted. However, yeah. we've seen that before, and it's it's rare that a police officer gets convicted in these circumstances. Yes, it, it, it is rare. Um, one need only go back to the last the time that um, there was a controversial uh, uh, acquittal, and that was, you know, the Rodney King uh, uh, acquittal when there was an uh, there was videotape of basically a gang beating of Rodney King, and many people I, I was uh, among them. Uh, thought that this was going to come out differently because so many times the uh, conflict was over what actually happened. Uh, so there's a long history of black uh, uh, witnesses not being believed. It used to be a matter of law that black witnesses couldn't even testify uh, against white people. We have the echoes of that in contemporary uh, uh, court cases against police officers. But a lot of people thought, this is on tape, so we cannot lose here. And I think some part of the outrage was, my God, even when it's on tape, even when you can see um, uh, police officers swarming a black man uh, who's prone on the ground and beating him senseless, potentially even killing him, we still can't get a conviction. And I think what a lot of folks don't really understand is how it happened. One of the ways it happened was that the defense attorney said, um, you show us the, 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 in the still picture where the force became excessive. It only becomes excessive when Rodney King complies. And because Rodney King is trying to shield himself from the blows, there's no moment in which he's prone, still complying with the police officer. This is another reason why so many chokeholds um, did not uh, result in a conviction, even when the chokeholds killed the person. Because when you're when you're dying, your body is dying, it flails, it moves, it tries to breathe. And again, they were able to say, well, the person is not compliant, so he can, uh, the officer can continue applying the force. The thing that's different about this video is that it is abundantly clear that the officer continues to apply the force after, after George Floyd is no longer responsive, a full two minutes after. So some of the controversy about the charges, at that point, it becomes clear that this officer is intending to inflict maximum harm on him, and it should be up to the jury to decide whether that intention is enough to justify a murder conviction. I, for one, the family, the attorneys, many people think that 
uh, a charge can be made out. And let me just point out, one of the things that happens in the criminal justice system all the time is that people are, the prosecutors charge, and they also include lesser uh, charges and leave it up to the jury to decide if that's sufficient for ordinary um, uh, criminal um, defendants, why is that not sufficient uh, for uh, this police officer and the so, rest of them, I might add. So you think that it should have been a higher charge than third-degree murder? I think that he could have charged for all and leave it to the jury to decide. I do understand, and this makes sense to a lot of people, they really need to get a conviction. They really need to get a conviction. So there's reason to, to worry that sometimes juries might react to what they perceive as an overcharge leading to an acquittal. So some of my colleagues are saying that this, in fact, is the safest bet. And I agree that it is safer, but I also think there's a symbolic dimension to actually denouncing what is seen. One has to recall as well that there's a police officer in Minnesota that was recently convicted of the same charge, and his act involved shooting someone who apparently startled him. So it was a split-second choice that was shown to be criminally negligent, and he was convicted. These are two different levels, though. What Chauvin did and what this officer did just seems to be incredibly different. And so the symbolic story of basically making these the same seems not to capture what it was that drives so many people, you know, to angry protest when they saw that video. Let me ask you this. There are calls for the three other officers to be charged. Should they be charged equally or should they be charged as accessories? Well, I think minimally they should be charged as accessories, and I would not be opposed to uh, them actually being charged along with Chauvin. We have to remember that in our criminal justice system, there are many people serving many years for actions that they helped facilitate even though they didn't themselves do it. Felony murder, for example, is a commonly used way of accusing, prosecuting, and convicting everyone who's involved in a criminal enterprise, whether they were the ones that actually inflicted the fatal blow or shot the fatal bullet or not. Um, so our criminal justice system recognizes that everyone is accountable and can be made accountable for an act that they help facilitate. Look at that videotape. Two of the other officers were actually holding him down. Another one was effectively keeping any other human humanitarian aid at bay. How can they not be responsible? How can they be sitting in their homes safely at this moment when thousands of people um, are in the streets and many people are being arrested? So one has to remember that the, the point of charging is to denounce behavior that this society has adjudged to be criminal and immoral. I wonder if there is a defense out in that that George Floyd had underlying conditions and it was a combination of factors that led to his death, whether that will be something the defense can use to win another acquittal here. I'm so glad you mentioned that because one of the sub-struggles, 
in many of these cases is the choice of the coroner to attribute the death of a person who's died at the hands of the police to underlying conditions. And it's interesting, there, there's some evidence that one of the officers who tried to suggest that perhaps they were getting into the territory of this excited delirium so that perhaps they should stop, seemed to be aware of this fact, that they were moving into a terrain in which if they didn't do something, this person might die, and it would be kind of an open question as to whether this was a homicide for which they were responsible. This is all to say that there's a whole system that allows this to continue, and part of that system is not to acknowledge that had this encounter not happened, then this person would not be dead. And that is, in fact, one of the real eyebrow-raising concerns uh, moving forward in this case and in many of the others. That's Professor Kimberly Crenshaw of Columbia Law School. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The Supreme Court rejected calls by churches in California and Illinois to block restrictions on worship services during the coronavirus outbreak. But the orders came in a closely divided 5-4 to four decision. Joining me is Richard Garnett, a professor at the University of Notre Dame Law School. Tell us what the church was objecting to. Sure. Well, um, so this, this particular uh, litigation involving uh, regulations of in-person religious services, and of course we've seen lots of these all over the country, um, came out of California and the, the church was objecting to what they saw as, you know, overly restrictive limits on, again, in-person religious service gatherings. Um, and, you know, litigation commenced, uh, this being America, litigation usually does. And um, the church was seeking for what's called an injunction, that is, they wanted the court to stop um, the order that was in place um, limiting their in-person services. and the federal courts out in California uh, declined to do that. So things were moving kind of quickly on the ground because as as the church was asking the Supreme Court to step in and to put a stop um, to the to the restrictions, uh, Governor Newsom uh, came out with kind of a modified order. So under the current order, and we're speaking on Monday, um, Religious services that are in person are permitted, uh, but they're limited in terms of the percentage capacity. I believe it's 25% um, or to 100 people, um, whatever's whatever's uh, greater. And so the church's argument to the Supreme Court was that, look, uh, we want you to enjoin this policy. It violates the free exercise clause. And the reason it does is because it's, it's discriminating against religious services, but it's not treating in-person religious services um, the same way as it's treating analogous secular activities. But the wrinkle here is is just um, uh, what is it exactly that we should be comparing in-person religious services to? Um, so on the one side, uh, and this is the church's argument, 
the claim is, look, um, in-person religious services should be treated just like, say, grocery stores or factories or um, restaurants and so on, which are which are currently allowed to be open under less restrictive rules in California. And the state's argument was that, well, no, actually, re religious services are more like, you know, movies or theater events or concerts or sporting events where, you know, large numbers of people are congregating for extended periods of time and maybe singing. And so if you want to, you know, the free exercise clause does, it does ban discrimination. We agree. But um, uh, there is no such discrimination happening here because religious services are being treated like the state says similar things. So what split the justices? So coming out of the Supreme Court, the, the interesting thing to watch, and this is what divided the justices, um, was you know whether these in-person religious services should be thought of as being uh, more like grocery stores or more like movies. And um, uh, that's, what, that's what the justices divided on. But it is worth remembering, and, and some of the press coverage didn't quite get this right, uh, the Supreme Court didn't sort of carefully evaluate and decide that, in fact, the California rules are constitutional. Um, the Chief Justice Roberts was careful to emphasize that this is kind of an unusual procedural situation where you have a litigant who's trying to stop a policy that's in place before it's really been litigated. That, that's what an, you know, an emergency injunction is. And in situations like that, um, the court is, is reluctant to, to intervene too hastily, right? The, the court, the Supreme Court, generally speaking, likes to have the facts developed a little bit more um, through the normal course of litigation before it weighs in. So it's entirely possible that um, Justice Kavanaugh's dissenting opinion that, that the California rule is not permissible, that might well be what the Supreme Court would say eventually, or it might well be what the court will say eventually. It's that's pretty much what another federal court um, in the Sixth Circuit has said. So it would be a mistake, I think, for the governor of California or for anybody else to assume that the policy now has the kind of Supreme Court's constitutional blessing. Um, what happens instead, I think, is that the, the court is taking seriously the fact that the facts on the ground are fluid and changing. And if this litigation continues, it, there could well come a day when when a federal court says, no, um, you know, temporary measures are one thing, but uh, you can't indefinitely um, place these kinds of limits on in-person religious services because, you know, our, our First Amendment embodies a commitment to the idea that religious exercise is really important and it has to be uh, treated um, as such. And, and while, of course, I think all the justices agreed that, you know, stopping a pandemic and stopping the spread of a virus is a very important government interest, I think everybody also agrees that we don't just switch off the Constitution just because we're in a public health emergency. And so um, I think this litigation will continue. Um, but uh, but for now, the court didn't want to uh, step in and sort of second guess the local officials without the benefit of more fact development. Chief Justice Roberts said that judges must give elected officials wide latitude to make health and safety judgments during a pandemic. It seems to go further than just saying this is more like a movie theater than a grocery store. Yeah, well, I think that's consistent with what I was said, saying in the sense that, um, uh, you know, some deference is appropriate and that, that provides a good reason for the court not to 
swoop in and put a stay on the order before the regular litigation process has time to develop the facts. I mean, I think I think it's a mistake. and I don't think the chief justice means to say that um, local officials can just invoke public health and then they get a blank check. That, that's I think that's a misunderstanding of the court's precedents. Um, you know, judicial review still exists uh, even when we're talking about public health. But but certainly for the chief justice, and this is consistent with his jurisprudence generally, um, uh, there's a sense that um, unelected federal judges, here he's sounding a lot like his his boss, Chief Justice Rehnquist, um, unelected federal judges should appropriately um, defer to local officials who are on the ground, who have closer access to the facts, and so on. But I don't take the Chief Justice, I, I could be wrong, obviously, but I don't take the Chief Justice to be saying, you know, because of a virus, uh, the First Amendment is, you know, judicial review under the First Amendment is, is suspended. I think that would be a mistake. So how did he balance public health and religious freedom in his decision? Well, again, the, the decision, I think what's doing the most work is not so much his sense of the balance, because I think he'd want to say it's not at this point in the procedure. Um, it's not really up to the court to kind of on its own try to balance these competing things. I mean, certainly religious exercise is a fundamental constitutional right and protecting public health is an important public um, uh, object. For for the Chief Justice, though, I, because of the unusual posture where you're seeking an emergency stay, uh, I think his view was that's what makes some deference appropriate. In a different procedural context, so maybe a couple you know, weeks or maybe even months from now, it might well be that the court then has to say, well, wait a minute, it actually is up to us now to have to kind of, on our own, use our independent judgment to decide whether the state in question, if it's California or somebody else, has appropriately tailored the regulations. Um, again, even in a time of a public health emergency, you know, restrictions on constitutional rights have to be justified. And um, even if deference is appropriate when you're talking about a request for an emergency injunction, again, I'd be surprised if this opinion means that there's kind of a, a blank check to officials to, to indefinitely limit in-person religious services, especially as they start to open up um, more and more other services. Again, the First Amendment, you know, the free exercise right is, is not completely absolute, but it is fundamental. And um, uh, the, the Constitution allows religious services to be regulated under neutral laws, but it doesn't allow religious services to be treated worse than things that are similar. So eventually, I think this question of, you know, again, what are religious services more like uh, would have to be litigated. But I think it's going to take a little more time to get a developed record on that point. So, and you'll see, you'll see, you'll see disagreements among the courts. So, and we've we've seen that already. I mean, the Ninth Circuit, which was the case that went up to the Supreme Court last week, um, you know, they seem to lean in favor of comparing churches to theaters, and the Sixth Circuit seemed to lean in favor of comparing them more to to grocery stores. So, we'll see how that plays out. Why do you think the liberals joined in the majority but didn't sign on to Roberts' opinion? I'm not sure. I guess I'm reluctant to read too much into it because, again, you know, this was, um, and a lot of people have, I think, missed this. 
this this wasn't a case that the court had accepted for review and actually decided five four. Instead, um, they didn't have to issue opinions at all, right? They Justice Kagan received the request for a stay, and she re- referred it to her colleagues for a vote. And oftentimes, these things are resolved without any opinion at all. It's just an order, you know. the The motion, uh, the motion's denied, right? Um, this wasn't a request for um, what we call certiorari or review. Uh, if, if such a petition comes in at some point, we might well see the court grant because it only takes four justices to grant. So I, I don't read a whole lot into the, those justices not um, uh, not signing on. It could be that you know because um, Justice Roberts usually agrees with those other four about religious freedom matters that he felt the need to kind of explain and respond uh, to sort of to kind of publicly make it clear that um, you know he, he's he's on board with the importance of the of the free exercise of religion, but um, anything else on my part is really just speculation okay. as to why the other four didn't join. Didn't join, but again, it's not unusual for justices to not join opinions that have to do only with orders. Do you think that his opinion gives enough guidance to lower courts about how to proceed in these matters now? Um. Well, I, th- I think it provides uh, some guidance or at least some clues for uh, how appellate courts are going to treat requests for injunctions, right, emergency injunctions. Um, I I don't think it's it ought to be seen as providing a blueprint blueprint, sorry, for how these cases should be regard, um, uh, resolved on the merits when they're presented. Because again, the, the justices don't, just don't have the benefit really of the usual course of litigation and, and going forward, some lower courts probably probably will. But I suspect that you will see some, especially appellate courts, kind of sounding a similar theme of, you know, for now, we're going to defer to local officials. But um, again, the, the facts are fluid and these orders are changing and they're, they vary from state to state and locality to locality. And as the as we learn more about the uh, coronavirus and as the nature of the threat um, changes, you know, hopefully improves, um, I think the restrictions on in-person religious services will, will have to evolve and will have to be lifted. Because again, religious services uh, can't be treated worse than other similar activities. Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law, Rick. That's Richard Garnett, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.